When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever wonder why people in positions of power always seem to do bad things? Ever wonder why the general population seems to tolerate and often even cheer on the same horrible things from people in power over and over and over again throughout all of recorded history? In this episode, I'm going to share some ideas that I believe suggest some answers to these and other related questions. Welcome to episode 109 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is CJ, your humble hazardous history host, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age. All of those things wrapped in one charming, pleasantly portly package. Here with another salvo in the war of mental liberation, known as the Dangerous History Podcast. And with delusions of grandeur like that, how can this not be an awesome episode? In this episode, I'm going to cover seven key concepts and theories, for lack of a better term to lump these things together, I'm going to call them concepts and theories, as part one of a series covering a total of 21 key concepts and theories that have influenced my understanding of history and also my understanding of the world as it currently is. And I'm going to divvy up my 21 key concepts and theories into three equal groups of seven. The first two installments of this series, the first 14 Concepts and Theories, will be regular Dangerous History podcast episodes, and then the third will be a DHP bonus episode available only to listeners who support the show for at least a dollar per episode via patreon.com slash profcj. Speaking of which, I have a couple of Patreon shoutouts. I have to thank two awesome individuals, Zach and John. Thank you both very much for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon since the last episode I made. Please consider supporting the show any way you can, and a great one is to sign up at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you sign up for at least a dollar per episode donation, and by all means feel free to share more if you have the funds available, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode donation, I will thank you by name in the next episode I produce of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in addition, you'll have access to bonus episodes that are available only to my supporters at a dollar per more per episode that are available nowhere else. Now, getting into the episode, by key concepts and theories, I mean a loose sort of catch-all category of things that include everything from psychological to economic to logical to historical and sociological and other sorts of concepts and theories. And I'll ask preemptive forgiveness. Some of these are from fields that are not my personal area of expertise, such as psychology or economics or sociology. 
Those are fields that I have an interest in and that I read a fair amount in, but I don't claim to be a top expert. So if I misuse any terminology, the, the blame for that falls on me. And really what I mean by these different concepts and theories is my specific take on them or my specific understanding or interpretation of some of these terms, some of these concepts and theories. To give a sense of what sort of thing I'm talking about, things like, for example, the Iron Law of Oligarchy, which I talked about a long time ago. In fact, I would probably include the Iron Law of Oligarchy, as well as the idea of esoteric versus exoteric, on this list of 21 concepts and theories, if I hadn't covered them already, way back, by the way, in episodes 34 and 20, respectively. And I have to say, my audio quality was not great back then, but I still stand by the actual meat, the actual content of those episodes. So anyway, I'm going to group my 21 concepts and theories into three groups of seven, like I said, and I'm going to try, at least with the first two batches, to group together concepts that are at least to some degree interrelated with each other. Although it's possible, I'm still kind of moving things around and refining the, the last items on the list a little bit. It's possible my last batch of seven, the one that'll be a Patreon bonus episode, might be sort of a potpourri grab bag sort of a thing. But definitely this first batch of seven concepts and theories are ones that all have to do in one way or another with understanding power, with understanding how it works, why it's so damaging, so dangerous, etc. The next batch of seven, which will be the next Dangerous History Podcast regular episode, are going to be concepts and theories relating in various ways to economics. And like I said, the third one, the Patreon bonus episode, taking up concepts 15 through 21 on my list, will likely be kind of a diverse grab bag. Sort of an Island of Misfit Toys list of things that just did not fit on the other two lists. By the way, this episode is going to have a lot of show notes with lots of external links to articles and videos and so on related to the things I'm talking about. So be sure to check those out. If you're not in the habit of looking at the show notes for each episode, I highly encourage you to do that by going over to profcj.org. And the specific show notes page for this episode is going to be profcj.org slash EP109. Now, my first concept and theory that I want to talk about, and one of the capstones of this whole series, is Power Corrupts. And related corollaries to that, such as, in addition to power corrupting, power also attracts those who are already corrupt, and it has a tendency, and this is kind of just magnifying the idea of power corrupts, power has a tendency to corrupt those who start off okay with benign intentions and a low existing tendency towards corruption. Power has a corrosive effect on those people. It may take a while in some cases, but sooner or later, power will corrupt them as well. Now, almost everyone is familiar with the basic statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But not as many people know where that actual line comes from, which, by the way, was Lord Acton, and fewer people still know the full quote. This is the full quote from the 19th century classical liberal historian and philosopher Lord Acton. Quote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority, still more when you superadd the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority, end quote. Now, the full quote is a lot more problematic to those in power, and perhaps you can understand why 
you rarely are given the full quote. You're normally just given the first line about power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You're left off the thing saying stuff like great men are almost always bad men. Now, Acton figured this out in the 19th century, well over 100 years ago. And other thinkers had figured it out in various ways even earlier. You can find this theme going all the way back, at least as far as the ancient Greeks and some of the ancient Chinese sages. This notion more recently is also a key theme in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, in which, as most of you probably know, the Ring of Power is pretty clearly a representation of power itself. It's particularly alluring to those who are already corrupt and in addition to that, over time, it will corrupt even the most well-intentioned individual who wields the ring. So even the hobbits, though it takes longer to corrupt them than it does most people, because hobbits are generally, you know, pretty benevolent beings. Nonetheless, given enough time, even the hobbit will become corrupted by the ring of power. Interestingly, this thing figured out by so many people going back to ancient times that power corrupts is actually backed up very strongly by modern science, including things like psychology and neuroscience. The Stanford Prison Experiment is probably the most famous experiment to illustrate this point, but there have been many others. If you're not familiar, the Stanford Prison Experiment was the famous experiment done, I think, in the 1970s for the first time by the psychologist Philip Zimbardo, in which a, a group of test subjects were recruited, and then at random, 50% of them were made into prisoners, and 50% of them were made into guards. And by the way, they were all screened beforehand to make sure that none of them had things like a history of violence and so on. And so they, they did their best to try to make sure that both the prisoners and the guards were chosen at random, and that neither of them had any prior pre-existing tendency towards any sort of abusive behavior. And as most of you probably know, who have any familiarity with this famous experiment, very quickly, the guards became horribly abusive. And also very quickly, the prisoners began exhibiting all kinds of symptoms of being totally crushed and subordinate. And some of them even began exhibiting symptoms similar to the Stockholm Syndrome, which, by the way, is another thing on this list of seven concepts and theories that I'm going to be talking about. The experiment went so bad so quickly that it had to be canceled early, lest somebody end up dead or horribly injured. Now, that's one of the most famous experiments that provides evidence for the claim that power corrupts. There have been many others that are kind of redos of that experiment performed in different countries and with some minor changes to the details of the experiment. There have been other experiments that are totally different in form that come to the same conclusion. And I'll link to some articles about a few of these different studies in the show notes for this episode. Other studies, including neuroscience and looking at the body's chemistry and so on, have shown that power has pretty much the same physiological effects on humans, especially on their brains, as cocaine, such as it raises levels of things like testosterone and dopamine. It gives people a really strong physiological high like cocaine, power is also highly addictive. Also like cocaine, those who have a lot of power experience horrible withdrawal symptoms when they lose it. Also like cocaine, addicts need to seek ever larger doses in order to get the same effects. This is why people who gain power of some sort rarely are content to just stay in whatever position of power they've achieved. Almost always at the soonest opportunity, they're trying to claw into an even greater position of power. 
So, for example, if you watch the excellent HBO series The Wire, when Carcetti gets elected mayor of Baltimore, he's pretty much instantaneously starting to run for governor. And, of course, real-life examples of that sort of phenomenon are pretty much every career politician who's ever lived. Now, most people would claim, at least, to agree with the basic idea that power corrupts. And yet, for some reason, they seem rarely willing to actually work out the troubling implications of this concept as far as, like, what it means for themselves, for their societies, and for the reality of the institutions under which they live. Now, here's an interesting thought before I move on to my next concept. The United States government is, and has been for quite some time, the most powerful state that has ever existed in all of human history by every measure you can think of. What should that fact tell us about its corrupting influence and its tendency to attract the already corrupt into its ranks? My next concept theory that I want to talk about is the idea of psychopathy and sociopathy. And the Hollywood depiction of these, these ideas, these mental conditions and the people who exhibit them, is often outlandish. It's not necessarily wrong, but by only focusing on like the wild serial killer types of psychopaths and sociopaths, they present a false notion of what the vast majority of people who would be categorized as psychopaths and sociopaths actually are like. In other words, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill and those sorts of people are not remotely representative of what most psychopaths are actually like. Many, perhaps most, psychopaths and sociopaths are not themselves personally physically violent towards others, but that does not make them any less dangerous or at least potentially dangerous. Now, an important thing, sometimes people get psychopath and psychopathic confused with psychotic. Someone who is psychopathic is not psychotic. Though the two words are very similar, they really need to not be confused. My basic understanding of the difference is a psychotic person is a person who is in some way flat out disconnected from reality. In other words, what most people would think of as a crazy person. By contrast, a psychopathic person is very much connected with reality. They just have a particular type of personality and their mind works a peculiar way. And my understanding is that the, the defining characteristics of, of these terms, psychopath and sociopath, are someone who lacks genuine emotion and empathy and remorse, conscience, for lack of a better term, uh, though someone who, in many cases, can fake those things very convincingly in a lot of cases, when they want to, when it's to their strategic or tactical advantage to do so. In other words, to exhibit crocodile tears and that sort of thing. If you're thinking this calls to mind a lot of politicians, especially the most consummate and successful ones, then you're absolutely on the right track. And if you do your own research and read up more on psychopathy and sociopathy, I think you'll inevitably come to the conclusion that I and many others have come to, which is that the characteristics of a psychopath and a very successful, skillful politician are hugely overlapping. I mean, there's not a whole lot of difference. It's like a Venn diagram in which the two circles are almost entirely overlapped. Psychopaths and sociopaths tend to be manipulative, pathological liars. Oftentimes they are extremely charming and charismatic, but they're like predators. And the rest of us, quote unquote, normal people, 
who are not psychopaths and sociopaths are really no different in their eyes from, say, the way an antelope would appear to a lion. The only things that really motivate these sorts of people are things like power, money, sex, other forms of physical pleasure. They're generally very big into satisfying impulses because that's one of the few things that makes them quote-unquote feel anything. So related to this, they often have crazy over-the-top sex drives and little or no impulse control, which, by the way, explains the behavior, for example, of so many politicians, doesn't it? Now, I'm not going to get hugely into the differences between psychopaths and sociopaths, because even the experts don't agree on this, and I don't claim to be an expert in this field. Even many expert psychologists don't agree 100% on all the details of these two terms. Some even characterize them as being pretty much the same. But in general, my understanding of the, the major distinction is that a sociopath tends to be more volatile and impulsive, while a psychopath tends to be much more cold-blooded and calculating. That said, they have a lot in common, again, so much that many experts think the terms are interchangeable. Both psychopaths and sociopaths tend to be very attracted to positions of power. Those psychopaths tend to be much more successful at climbing into positions of power in the long run, in places like the corporate and government worlds. Psychopaths and sociopaths will often become regular old criminals if they're raised in certain circumstances that lead them in that direction, but if they're raised in very different circumstances, such as, for example, being born into wealth and privilege and attending private boarding schools and going to Ivy League universities and joining elite fraternities and all that sort of stuff, then psychopaths and sociopaths are much more likely to go into the corporate and or government worlds where they can do a lot more damage, actually. Because let's face it, even the most prolific run-of-the-mill serial killer is a joke of an amateur compared to many recent American presidents when it comes to the body count they leave in their wake. Now, I'm going to mostly talk about psychopaths for the rest of my coverage of this because I think they're the ones that are more likely than sociopaths to consistently achieve very high positions of power in the quote-unquote, respectable institutions of society, such as corporations and government. Part of a psychopath's power, aside from the fact that they're usually very manipulative and charismatic and can pretend to care about you and so on, is the fact that most people, and the vast majority of people are not psychopaths, most people do in fact have empathy. And because they have empathy, they can't really comprehend unless they've studied a bit and perhaps dealt with some psychopaths personally and understood these people were psychopaths. Most people really don't deep down comprehend that there are some people who really just do not have anything like a sense of empathy or right and wrong or what we would consider a conscience. And this leaves the majority of the population, the non-psychopaths, extremely vulnerable to being conned and manipulated by the psychopaths because they just refuse to really understand that these people are out there and oftentimes they're the charming politician and so on. Now, like I said before, I believe the characteristics of a psychopath and a consummate politician are largely the same, and I find it interesting that there have actually been a lot of studies in recent years looking at psychopathy in the corporate world, but there have been very few who have really tried to look in-depth at psychopathy amongst high-level politicians. Gee, I can't imagine why there would be that blind spot in a lot of the psychopathy research. 
Now, I'll give some credit to the series House of Cards, because they actually do portray politicians very often as being psychopathic. And what a contrast House of Cards is to garbage propaganda like the West Wing. In particular, the way that the Underwoods are portrayed in House of Cards is just beautiful. Now, in typical Hollywood fashion, they exaggerate it for theatrical effect and and make it a little bit unrealistic in some cases. So, for example, in typical Hollywood exaggerating fashion, they have Frank Underwood sometimes commit murders with his own two hands, which is something that a high-level, successful Washington, D.C. psychopath would probably never, ever do. Not because he has a moral aversion to it, but because he would understand that it is tactically and strategically not a wise move. Instead, he'd have someone else do his dirty work for him, is what I'm saying. By the way, Dave Smith, the comedian and host of the podcast Part of the Problem, has repeatedly said that he thinks Hillary Clinton is a psychopath, and I absolutely think he's right. By the way, I think Bill Clinton is probably one too, for that matter. Now, most studies estimate that psychopaths actually compose only about 1% or 2%, and and I guess this is probably counting sociopaths along together with them, lumping them together, constitute only about 1% to 2% of the human population. Personally, I suspect this is an under-calculation, because I think a lot of psychopaths and sociopaths, especially the more refined kind of white-shoe psychopaths, are so slick and so good at faking human emotion and empathy that they simply are never detected, even by psychologists. But that said, let's even for the sake of of argument assume that it's correct that 1-2% to of the human population are these sorts of people. Studies have found that among high-level corporate people, psychopaths are very disproportionately represented at a rate more than twice the rate of psychopathy among the general population. So, for example... I've seen studies that estimate that about 5% of high-level corporate people are psychopaths, as opposed to 1% to 2% of the population at large. Now, again, as with the number regarding the population at large, I suspect that is very much an underestimate. That is a low estimate. Um, I think the real numbers are higher. What they are, I don't know, and I don't claim to know. I don't pretend to know. And among prisoners, the rate of psychopathy and sociopathy is several times even what they come up with for corporate executives. And I would love to see a study that really honestly looked at high-level politicians and figured out their rates of psychopathy and sociopathy, but for some reason, I doubt such a study will ever happen. One study that I'll link to an article summarizing it in the show notes for this episode listed the top careers for psychopaths, in other words, where they are the most disproportionately represented, as follows. CEO, lawyer. Media, and specifically referring to television and radio there. Salesperson. So far, not a lot of surprises, at least to me. Surgeon, which, by the way, is one of the few places I can see that would be a useful place to employ a psychopath. Because someone who is very calm and in a way ruthless, I mean, if you're going to be carving into somebody... That's kind of who I want. I want the person who doesn't really have much emotions. Um, As long as he's doing his job correctly, I'm fine with a psychopath performing surgery on me. As long as he's doing what he's supposed to do, I actually would have more confidence in a psychopath surgeon than I would someone who's, you know, very, very emotional and so on and empathetic. Continuing on the list of careers with high levels of of psychopaths, journalist, police officer, shocking. 
clergy. Shocking, isn't it? Again, think of the attributes of a psychopath, including being very charming and manipulative, and then think of the attributes of a very successful preacher, clergy person, etc. It's pretty freaking similar, let's be honest. Chef. I thought that was kind of interesting, and I'll admit that's another one where as long as they're not either poisoning people's food or cooking up people like Hannibal Lecter does, then I'm fine with psychopaths being chefs. If it means they can very calmly and efficiently make food under high-stress situations in a busy restaurant, I think that's a fine usage of their personality traits. And last on the list, civil service personnel, meaning basically government bureaucrats. Interestingly, most of those occupations that I just listed are people that I generally would not trust and generally don't look upon positively as sort of a default position. Not saying that I might not occasionally meet a person who's one of those career categories who I come away believing is a genuinely good person and so on. I I certainly don't think everyone who's in all of those careers is a psychopath. Don't misunderstand. But sort of my default position looking at people in most of those careers I just listed is negative and kind of the burden is on them as an individual in that career to change that default evaluation on my part. There were two things left off that list that I thought might deserve to be there. And I wonder if this study really looked at these people or what. One would be soldiers. I I would guess that if psychopaths are disproportionately represented at the DMV and at the police department, and amongst the clergy, and amongst lawyers, it would be unrealistic to expect that they are not also disproportionately represented amongst military personnel. Again, not saying every person in the military is a psychopath, but I I really, really don't believe that psychopaths are not disproportionately represented amongst military personnel. That to me seems ridiculously unrealistic in light of the other careers that are on that list. And then the last one is, of course, politician. Now, I suppose the list contains lawyer and civil servant. So if you kind of combine those, that pretty much at least suggests politician. But I think that politician is in a separate category because, while many politicians are lawyers or have previously been civil servants, a horribly euphemistic term, by the way. But while many politicians have that in their background, not everyone who's a lawyer or a civil servant is a politician. So anyway, I think that's a shortcoming of the list. I think they, they, for whatever reason, I don't think they really looked at military personnel and politicians. Interestingly, psychopaths are usually not very productive at work, at least in the conventional sense, but they're seen by their coworkers and superiors as charismatic people, smooth operators. They're good at playing the game. They're good at rising up the hierarchy somehow, despite not being productive. I would wager probably everyone listening to my voice right now has had at least one boss somewhere in their job history that seems like they might have likely been a psychopath. They often are very good at rising up hierarchical institutions. They're also good at taking credit for other people's accomplishments. Again, calls to mind many horrible bosses and also many politicians, doesn't it? The Inuit, the native peoples of northern North America, they referred to psychopaths by a term, which is, and I'm probably butchering the the pronunciation, kunlangeta, that translates something along the lines of people who just won't do the right thing. And the Inuit described these people as the the men, and most psychopaths are men. There are there have been some female psychopaths, probably Eileen Warnos, the most famous, but definitely all the studies indicate that psychopathy and sociopathy, while there are women in both categories, it tends to be more common amongst men. 
Anyway, getting back to the Inuit term, it translates something along the lines as men who will not go out hunting with the rest of the men from the village and who instead stay back and seduce the women of the village while all the rest of the men are out, you know, working, hunting, etc. By the way, the Inuit had a great way of dealing with these sorts of people. It was very simple, but effective. Simply push them off the ice whenever you have the chance. Unfortunately, our society, as it's currently structured, tends to provide lots of opportunities for these people to rise into positions of power, both inside and outside of the state. Remember, power attracts the corrupt. Also, what effect do you think that power, with all of its addictive effects and highs and so on, would have on someone who's already a psychopath? Now, again, I just want to stress, I'm not saying that everyone who's in a position of power currently is a genuine psychopath or sociopath. But I'm saying there's lots of good reason to believe that psychopaths and sociopaths are very disproportionately represented in those places relative to their numbers among the general population at large, you know, the masses. And also, since power corrupts and produces all those cocaine-like symptoms and so forth, I think it's fair to say that even non-psychopaths, once they get power, will over time begin to exhibit more and more characteristics of a psychopath, including acting without any regard to morality and being more and more impulsive and so on. Also, by the way, I think non-psychopaths who want to climb pyramids of power will often find themselves emulating psychopaths because they observe the behavior and the characteristics of people who have already successfully climbed those pyramids. So kind of monkey see, monkey do. People who are maybe not really genuinely psychopaths start to act more and more like psychopaths in the pursuit of power. And I'll just close on this concept theory, whatever you want to call it, by saying that as long as there are coercive institutions, and of course the one ring to rule them all when it comes to coercive institutions, at least in the current era, is the state, psychopaths will, will, guaranteed, no question, find their way into those coercive institutions and often will rise very high within them. And if you think that's bad, and I would totally agree with you if you did, I would say that it's even worse, its damaging effects are even more magnified when you combine that with the next concept, number three, which is most humans are hardwired for tribalism, submission, and conformity. Now, my reading, my understanding of how and why most human beings seem to be hardwired for tribalism, submission, and conformity is that this may have been an evolutionary trait that was very valuable when human beings were a tiny, vulnerable group in a very, very hostile planet, when mankind had not yet mastered control of most of the world, which, by the way, was most of the time that human beings have existed. Relatively, it's only been in the blink of an eye that we've developed what we think of as modern weapons and technology and so on. In those previous eras that constituted most of human existence, tribes of various sorts were absolutely essential to survival. So the tendency to conform, to submit to quote-unquote authority, and to conform and to be a part of your tribe served a very important, useful survival purpose in that context. But I would argue that like so many tendencies that evolved long ago in our history or even prehistory, this is another one that has long since stopped being a net positive and has in fact become a net negative. I would say this is in a way analogous to the human sweet tooth, right? Most humans 
love sweets. Most humans love chowing down on candy and pies and dessert and cookies and whatever. Why is this? Well, evolutionarily speaking, for most of our existence as a species, and even our our ancestors who were of different species, food was often scarce. You weren't always sure where your next meal was coming from. And so when you happened upon a calorie-dense meal, such as a very sugary food or whatever, oh my gosh, it's uh, fruit season, the, the blah 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 fruit is ripening and falling off the tree, chow down, baby. Go to town, stuff your face. You don't know when you'll get that opportunity again. And so the sweet tooth, for lack of a better term, right, using my amateur term, I'm sure there's a scientific term for it, but that's not my wheelhouse. The human sweet tooth served a function of keeping us alive for many, many, many generations. But now in the modern world, with all of the agriculture and abundance of food that we have in most of the world today, the human sweet tooth once a very helpful tool to keeping you alive, is now a threat to your life. Especially in the wealthier parts of the world, the so-called developed world, you find that obesity and all of the related health problems that go along with it are much more of a problem than starvation. And so a trait that served a useful purpose a long, long time ago no longer serves a helpful purpose today, and in fact has become counterproductive, has gone from helping you survive and thrive to actually ruining your health and potentially killing you. And I would argue that the human tendency towards tribalism, submission, and conformity is analogous to that, only it's dangerous on like a planet-wide level instead of just an individual health level. So when you combine this tendency with concepts one and two, that power corrupts and attracts the already corrupt, and understanding what a psychopath really is and how they work, when you combine this with the fact that the vast majority of people who, again, are not psychopaths themselves, are hardwired for submission and conformity, and you begin to see that most of humanity is incredibly vulnerable to being manipulated and exploited for the benefit of psychopathic elites, which explains, oh, I don't know, most of human history. Now the oddballs, the troublemakers, the people that don't go along and don't fit in, the people who have apparently just an innate tendency to resist conformity and submission, people like myself and probably most of you if you're in the DHP listenership, those sorts of people in the grand scheme of humanity are incredibly rare. They're like a black swan. And there are evolutionary reasons for this. Going way back, if you didn't get along with your tribe and fit in and do what your chief said, you simply were out of the gene pool one way or another. For most of our prehistory and history as a species, nonconformists have frequently faced death, or at the very least denial of resources, including denial of access to mates for reproduction and thereby passing on your rebellious nonconformist genes. So if there is, as I believe some genetic component involved in nonconformity. And I'm not saying it's all genetics, but I'm saying I think genetics are part of the puzzle. If there is, in fact, a genetic component at work in people who tend to not be good, submissive, conformist obeyers of authority, then that gene has been under constant attack since there have been people. I mean, just hypothetically, imagine you're a member of a tribe that practices human sacrifice, that thinks you've got to throw someone into a volcano every now and then to keep the gods happy. And you're the one weirdo who thinks this is not true and that this is morally wrong and it's based on, at best, faulty beliefs and at worst, outright lies by the leaders. 
and you're in a society that thinks human sacrifice is normal and good, and quote-unquote everyone knows this, what's likely to happen to you if you're the one person who doesn't believe what everyone else does around you, and you actually express your views about this? Yeah, we all know the answer. You're probably the next person to get chucked into the volcano. And then, of course, your non-submissive, non-conformist genes don't get passed on, do they? And in an age of massive nation-states, this could go awry in an era of small tribes. Even when it still serves some useful purpose, it also still could could cause horrible things to happen. But in an age of massive nation-states, of millions and hundreds of millions or even billions of people, and weapons of mass destruction and all these things, the tendency of humans to conform and obey and submit is one of the most dangerous tendencies of human nature that there is. The Milgram experiment illustrates this tendency very well, as have other experiments of various sorts over the years. The Milgram experiment, if you don't know, is one in which a test subject is put into a room separated by glass like a one-way mirror, I think, from another person who is supposedly taking a test of some sort. And the test subject on the other side of the glass from the person taking the test is given a device that if they push a button or turn a dial, I forget which, it sends a shock to the person on the other side of the glass. And they're told by the guys conducting the experiment, hey, if the guy on the other side of the glass answers a question incorrectly, you have to give him a zap of electricity using this knob. And they're also told that each time the guy answers wrong and they zap him, they'll get an ever larger dose of electricity sent to the guy. Now, in reality, the person on the other side of the glass who's answering questions and is in danger of being zapped is actually a confederate of the men carrying out the study. He's an actor. The real thing being studied and tested is whether or not the person given the controls to zap the person on the other side of the glass is willing to do so just because a guy with a lab coat and a clipboard, relatively mild symbols of authority, tells him to. And long story short, the Milgram experiment showed that a disturbing number of people will inflict horrible pain on their fellow man simply because a person with some sort of symbol of authority, even something as mild as a lab coat and a clipboard, tells them to do it. If that doesn't illustrate the inborn tendency of many people to submit, obey, and conform, I don't know what does. And you can look up more on this experiment if you're not familiar with it. It is fascinating. By the way, subsequent versions of this experiment in some cases have tried to learn more about the relatively rare people who refuse to keep administering shocks. And what they found is that the people who will stop and say, no, I don't care what you say, Mr. Labcoat guy. I'm not going to keep hurting that man on the other side of the glass. They found that those people are the types of people who personality-wise are considered difficult, cantankerous, problematic to get along with. Those are the people who will not crank the dial and administer pain to you when they're told by a person of authority to do so. It's the weirdos, the people that don't get along easily with others. They're the ones who won't zap you. By contrast, the test subjects who most readily and without any trouble will zap the guy on the other side of the glass tended to be people who, personality-wise, were considered friendly and easy to get along with. Isn't that interesting? By the way, another very interesting study is the ASH conformity study, and ASH in this case spelled A-S-C-H. This one's not as well known as the Milgram experiment, I don't think, but it's also very interesting and illustrates a lot of similar phenomenon. 
In this study, a test subject is put into a room with a bunch of other people, and he's told he'll be taking a vision test. And the test is going to be, you're shown a line, and then you're shown several other lines of different sizes, and you're told which of those um, in, in the group of lines is most similar to the original line you were shown. In reality, they're not testing people's vision. They're testing conformity. And in reality, the other quote-unquote test subjects in the room are confederates of the experiment, and they're all giving the same wrong answers. And this test, I believe it was close to 40%, at least in the original ASH study, nearly 40% of test subjects will go with the group's wrong answer rather than the evidence of their own eyes. Some of those who went along with the group with the wrong answers given by the group truly believed that the group had the right answer, even though it was blatantly wrong. Others who went along with the group later said they knew it was the wrong answer, but they went along anyway because it would be easier, more socially, you know, comfortable and acceptable to just go along with the group. The study also showed that if you put someone else in the room who also is who is not going along with the answer given by the rest of the people in the group, in other words, who is actually also putting forth the correct answer, that the test subject is much more likely to stick to his guns and and go with what actually is the right answer instead of going with the answer given by most of the people in the room. So I'll link to something about that in the show notes for this episode as well. I'll also link to an interesting presentation given by Michael Humer at... Porkfest a number of years ago in which he talks about a lot of these experiments and talks about kind of the psychology of obedience. It's a very good presentation. So anyway, we now have slick, ruthless, cold-blooded psychopaths getting into corrupting positions of power and then being very successfully able to manipulate the tendency towards submission, conformity, and obedience on the part of most human beings. It's not looking very optimistic. And this brings us to concept theory number four, Stockholm Syndrome. This, if you don't know, is a specific psychological phenomenon that seems to strengthen this innate tendency of most people to submit to authority and to conform with what everyone else is doing and thinking and saying. The Stockholm Syndrome was first described by psychologists in the 1970s, and it was, for lack of a better term, I guess, discovered in regard to a multi-day hostage hostage situation with a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, in which by the end of the ordeal, some of the hostages came to very dramatically sympathize with and even defend their captors. Now, the Stockholm Syndrome as a psychological phenomenon doesn't just apply to to hostage situations. It can be seen in many traumatic situations in which one party is abusive and controlling over another. So, for example, victims of domestic abuse and child abuse and those sorts of things often exhibit a version of the Stockholm Syndrome or something very similar to it. You can also see this phenomenon in things like military training, especially the more abusive kind of, you know, full metal jacket boot camp stuff, and in fraternity hazing and in the behavior of at least some concentration camp victims, and in the behavior of many cult members. Now, this psychological phenomenon might be a survival and or defense mechanism from long ago. In tribal days, for example, it was a way to increase your odds of survival if you were kidnapped by another tribe, which was apparently pretty frequent back in those days. In addition, it might have something to do with when you have someone controlling and abusing you, many people will have a tendency to see every time that you're not abused, having that be like a kindness instead of just a lack of abuse for a moment. 
So, for example, how often do victims of abuse choose to focus on the times that their abuser was nice to them and completely ignore the abuse itself, even if the abuse was actually much more common than the times when abuse was not you know, immediately happening? Now, this obviously has a lot of importance to understanding individual human relations, such as abusive relationships and so on. But think about its implications for understanding people's attitudes towards states who rule over them, especially, quote unquote, their state, and correspondingly a tendency to look very badly on other states. Isn't it interesting how many Americans, for example, have bitter hatred for other states, maybe Russia or Iran or whoever else is playing the role of Hitler of the week this week? Even if those quote-unquote other states have never really done much directly to hurt the American people. And yet those same Americans will really viciously be apologists for all the actions of the U.S. government, no matter how nasty. They'll defend everything it does, even though that state, the U.S. government, extorts money and resources from the American people on a regular basis and seeks to control their lives and limit their freedom and threatens them with imprisonment or worse for not following all the rules, no matter how stupid those rules are. And yet all of the hatred is focused on the quote unquote other state. Isn't that at least analogous to the Stockholm syndrome, if not Stockholm syndrome itself? I think the Stockholm syndrome combined with the other concepts and theories we've already covered so far explains a lot of these sorts of behaviors. Concept number five is the doctrine of double effect, sometimes also called the principle of double effect, and I'll often refer to it as DDE for shorthand. This is the DDD described by the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Quote, the doctrine or principle of double effect is often invoked to explain the permissibility of an action that causes serious harm such as the death of a human being, as a side effect of promoting some good end. According to the principle of double effect, sometimes it is permissible to cause a harm as a side effect, or double effect, of bringing about a good result, even though it would not be permissible to cause such a harm as a means to bringing about the same good end. end quote. In other words, my best attempt to put it into plain English is the basic idea of the DDE is that an action which normally would be wrong may be okay if it is done in the pursuit of some good goal. Now, that's maybe not perfectly stating it, but that's trying to nail it down. I mean, you're in the realm of abstract moral philosophy here. It's kind of murky waters, at least to me. Now, this argument that this is a valid moral principle, the doctrine of double effect, is largely built by placing great emphasis on intent rather than on results or what actually occurs. So, for example, if you kill five innocent people by dropping bombs, but killing those five innocent people was not your motivation for the bombing, say you were targeting a legitimate target, quote-unquote, and that those people just happened to be in the vicinity, wrong place, wrong time, etc., that would be considered morally acceptable, according to the DDE, whereas if you'd just gone and dropped a bomb on those five innocent people on purpose, and the, the ultimate goal of the bombing was just dropping a bomb on those people, that would be bad. But, I would point out, to the five innocent people killed, and perhaps more importantly, to their surviving friends and relatives, this distinction of intention probably doesn't matter all that much, don't you think? Also, just to make clear, the DDE isn't talking about just the unforeseen side effects of an action. It's 
specifically includes and excuses as morally okay the bad consequences that are caused in the pursuit of a supposedly good goal, even if those bad consequences were entirely foreseen, you know, beforehand. So it should be pretty obvious that the basic idea of the DDD, I'm sorry, the DDE, is often the basis for things like bombing civilians and killing innocent bystanders with drone strikes while targeting supposed alleged terrorists and describing these killings of innocent people as simply collateral damage as part of pursuing a quote-unquote greater good, such as winning a war, killing a terrorist, spreading peace and freedom, or whatever else it is this week. Now, the DDE originated as an argument from some Christian theologians, such as Thomas Aquinas, to justify things like killing another person in self-defense. Generally, most people think that killing another person is a bad thing, but on the other hand, most people, other than committed pacifists, agree that killing someone else in a situation in which it truly is you or them, self-defense, is morally justifiable. But I don't think the DDE is the best argument to explain why self-defense is legitimate, and I think the DDE itself is so dangerous and so liable to be abused by those in power that it needs to be attacked and rejected as an argument. At least in my way of thinking, the DDE is not only very dangerous, but it's just unnecessary if one's morality is derived primarily from something like the non-aggression principle. So in a NAP, NAP, non-aggression principle, moral universe, for example, one can morally defend self-defense, up to and including killing an aggressor if it's necessary to defend yourself, simply based on the distinction between aggressive violence, i.e. initiating violence, which is immoral under the NAP, the distinction between that and defensive violence, i.e. employing violence against one who is initiated against you first. So this is because under the NAP, violence a la carte by itself as a thing is not necessarily either good or evil. The crucial distinction is whether you're looking at aggressive or defensive violence. And if one kills someone who has initiated violence against you and is trying to kill you, I would not call that something like a necessary evil. Again, I, I reject the whole idea of necessary evils. I would say if it was truly necessary, if it was truly warranted to keep yourself alive, to kill someone who's trying to kill you, then it can't be evil. And I think the whole notion of necessary evil is philosophically a handmaiden of the DDE, and it is also very problematic and dangerous. I don't think you need the DDE, to justify self-defense. I think you do need the DDE, however, if you're going to be doing things that are much more, to put it genteelly, morally problematic. Now, in theory, the DDE is supposed to have many caveats and conditions that have to be met in order for it to be valid in morally justifying a specific action. So, for example, as paraphrased on Wikipedia... The author T.E. Kavanaugh, in the book Double Effect Reasoning, Doing Good and Avoiding Evil, says that according to the DDE, an action is morally acceptable if it has foreseeable negative effects, only if the following conditions are met. And this is me reading the quote from Wikipedia that's summarizing Kavanaugh's argument. The nature of the act is itself good, or at least morally neutral. The agent intends the good effect and not the bad, either as a means to the good or as an end in itself. The good effect outweighs the bad effect in circumstances sufficiently grave to justify causing the bad effect, and the agent exercises due diligence to minimize the harm, end quote. And our author Mark Timmons, 
in his book Moral Theory, states the conditions that need to be met as follows. And you see, it's very similar, but a little bit different from Kavanaugh. And again, this is as summarized by Wikipedia. Quote, The nature of the act condition, the act, must be either morally good or indifferent. The means end condition, the bad effect must not be the means by which one achieves the good effect. The right intention condition, the intention must be the achieving of only the good effect, with the bad effect being only an unintended side effect. The proportionality condition, the bad effect must not be disproportionate to the good effect, end quote. So, for example... You can come up with lots of different scenarios in which the DDE would seem to make sense and most decent people would agree with it. So just to give one hypothetical, the DDE could plausibly be invoked by people who are normally opposed to abortion to make an exception in cases where it's absolutely necessary medically to save the mother's life to abort the baby, the fetus, whatever you want to call it. I'm not trying to get into that argument. Now, wherever you come down on that particular scenario, I think most of us would agree that it is a scenario where there's a fair amount of gray area. The whole concept of abortion potentially being medically necessary to save the life of the mother. It's a place where intelligent people of goodwill might disagree. However, the DDE in practice, as deployed by those in power and their apologists, is very different from the DDE with all of its caveats and conditions that have to be met, as outlined in theory by moral philosophers. In practice, the DDE-based moral reasoning most of the time simply deteriorates to some sort of lowest common denominator, ends justify the mean sort of thing, under which almost any horror can potentially be defended as being justified, if not downright good. I think you can see it in the Jacobins' cavalier attitude towards killing hundreds of thousands, by low estimates, during the French Revolution in order to build their Republic of Virtue, and you can see it in the Bolsheviks' at least equally cavalier attitude toward liquidating millions of people in order to build a communist utopia. If I'm not mistaken, it was Leon Trotsky who first coined the phrase, in order to make an omelet, you've got to break some eggs. And of course, you can see the DDE in the decision of the Truman administration to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You can also see it in the grunts who carried out these sorts of orders, and in those, both at the time and after the fact, who acted as apologists and justifiers for those acts. This idea, the doctrine of double effect, is a very powerful and seductive tool in the toolbox of those psychopaths who are in positions of power to use in order to get their non-psychopathic followers to go along morally with the commission of some really horrible atrocities. I mean, just to, to close on this concept, I'll say push to its logical conclusions, especially if you're not really paying much attention to all of the caveats and conditions that need to be met according to moral philosophers, the DDE serves to provide moral cover for all sorts of nasty things. Every great mass murderer in history at least claims to be in pursuit of some greater goal, some greater good, often a very rosy utopian sounding one. And the DDE and arguments based on it and derived from it make it just that much easier for the rank-and-file non-psychopathic followers of these kind of leaders to obey 
conform, submit, and participate in carrying out those sorts of orders. Concept number six, the noble lie. This is one with which many of you are probably already familiar. Here's the description from Wikipedia. Quote, In politics, a noble lie is a myth or untruth, often, but not invariably, of a religious nature, knowingly told by an elite to maintain social harmony or to advance an agenda. The noble lie is a concept originated by Plato as described in The Republic. In religion, pious fiction is a narrative that is presented as true by the author, but is considered by others to be fictional, albeit produced with an altruistic motivation. The term is sometimes used pejoratively to suggest that the author of the narrative was deliberately misleading readers for selfish or deceitful reasons, end quote. And here I'm particularly interested in the noble lie as a method of those in power, not just in the religious realm or not even primarily in the religious realm here, but in terms of power of the state. And I believe that a lot of American history writing, particularly in the realm of so-called popular history, could easily be categorized as noble lies. This idea that the elites are justified in lying to people if it's for, yet again, for a greater good, can be found in the writings of Plato and also in some other ancient medieval and early modern philosophers, and it was resurrected in a major way by an intellectual named Leo Strauss in the 20th century, who was a philosopher who was both a teacher to and an inspiration to many of the founders of American neoconservatism, such as Irving Kristol. Now, these neoconservatives spout nationalist mythologies and support fundamentalist right-wing religious organizations, despite the fact that there's every good reason to believe that the neoconservatives themselves don't actually believe these things are objectively true, but they think they're useful. They believe that having the masses believe this nonsense serves some greater good, some nationalistic purpose of national greatness or whatever they're calling it this week. There are several good books about neoconservatism out there, and also the documentary film Power of Nightmares, made, I want to say, about 10 years ago, something like that, about the interesting kind of symbiotic-slash-adversarial relationship between American neoconservatives and Islamist extremists. That film does a great job, Power of Nightmares of explaining this concept of the noble lie, and in particular how it is used by American neoconservatives. It's really one of the centerpieces of their approach to politics. Now, although the neocons are the most famous, the most notorious, and the most open about embracing the idea of the noble lie, I think that pretty much all politicians and parties embrace it to one degree or in one form or another though they might not be as comfortable openly admitting to using it as some of the neocons have been. Now, a, a micro example of this that many people can readily identify with is that most parents tell their children noble lies of various sorts, from mythologies and supernatural stuff designed to make the child behave a certain way, to things as simple as drastically exaggerating the dangers of smoking pot or something like that, right? Especially it's a noble lie when the parent themselves has used these drugs and 
actually has firsthand knowledge that they're not nearly as dangerous as what they're telling their kids. And there are lots of other versions of this as well. Most parents tell their children noble lies of various sorts. By the way, I try very hard to avoid ever doing such a thing with my own kids. But likewise, most people on one level or another are completely fine with quote-unquote their leaders, be they religious or political leaders, employing noble lies. Though those same people are often very quick to cry bloody murder when a leader who's an other quote-unquote uses the noble lie. And by other, I mean a leader of another political party, maybe another nation's government, or in the case of religion, the leaders of another religion, right? Another denomination or whatever. The same people that support, defend, and so on, their own leaders using noble lies are quick to cry foul when those of other tribes use noble lies. And I'll just say that in my opinion... Like the DDE, the noble lie is yet another powerful tool in the toolbox of corrupt psychopaths in positions of power that they can use to manipulate and control and exploit their followers. And the last concept I want to talk about is the concept of base and superstructure. And this is, as many of you know, actually a Marxist concept. And I'm by no means a Marxist, as anyone who's listened to this show at all should know. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that Marxist intellectuals have occasionally made a good point, you know, kind of the intellectual equivalent of a of a stopped clock being right twice a day or whatever. Now, the idea of base and superstructure in classic orthodox Marxism is that the base is the means of production in a society, everything from farmland to mines to factories or whatever. And the base also is kind of the relationships of who owns and controls these means of production and all the relationships that are built around that. The superstructure are the parts of a society like the beliefs of a society, political and legal institutions, art and culture, religion, and so on and so forth. And in classic Marxism, there's a very one-sided deterministic relationship, which is that base determines superstructure. Now, I differ from the orthodox Marxists on my exact understanding of base and superstructure in a few ways, though. First off, I think that culture, which I believe does originate ultimately from the base nonetheless, at some point, kind of takes on a life and a force of its own, sort of like a Frankenstein monster, and can in turn have an impact back on to affect the base. To be fair, there are plenty of unorthodox Marxists and even some non-Marxists who have realized this long before I figured it out. So in other words, kind of like life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art, etc., etc., base and superstructure have this kind of back-and-forth reciprocal relationship where one influences the other and back and forth. Now, I'll link to a graphic on Wikipedia that illustrates this relationship, which I think is pretty good. However, the idea is that while there is this back-and-forth relationship, ultimately the base is the originator of this relationship and of the superstructure in the first place. In other words, the base is whatever you think actually came first in the whole chicken or egg question, right? The whole question of which came first, the base or the superstructure, I believe ultimately the base did. And then the superstructure evolves from it, but in in turn, the superstructure does potentially have an impact back on 
changing the base. Another difference I have with the classic Marxist take on this is I don't think direct, explicit ownership of the means of production is always the base. So, for example, in the financialized world of today, and for at least 100 years, if not more, in much of the Western world, you get way more power and leverage from being a financial institution, such as an investment bank, than you actually get by directly owning the means of production. So, for example, in today's America, it is way more lucrative most of the time, and more prestigious and confers more power if you run a big Wall Street bank than if you own and run a factory or a mining operation or a farm. And another difference that I have with the orthodox Marxists on this concept is that I think that power, meaning raw coercive power, the ability to deploy violence to get your way, should be taken into account as part of the base that is not necessarily always synonymous with the owning and controlling of the means of production. In other words, there have been many societies in history where very wealthy businessmen and property owners and so forth are really at the mercy of political elites who may not directly own or control the means of production. All that said, I think that the understanding of the basic concept of base and superstructure does help to illuminate how all the different aspects of what we call a culture reflect and reinforce and seek to keep in place the underlying power relations to one degree or another. So this explains why, for example, most of the time one finds religious leaders encouraging their followers to submit to and obey their political leaders, and why so much of art and culture throughout so much of history has been about glorifying the powerful, and so on. Now, as sort of a corollary or a derivative, maybe, of understanding base and superstructure, I would add that I believe that most people don't really have any principles at all, most of the time. Instead, I believe that most people, there are exceptions, but most people, most of the time, simply pursue whatever benefits them, and that they come up with beliefs that rationalize and justify what coincidentally happens to dovetail with their own benefit in terms of wealth or power or what have you. And the people in these instances may not even be consciously aware that that's what they're doing, but in a way, it's almost like kind of a form of confirmation bias, where without even realizing consciously that that's what you're doing, you're really just sort of justifying things supposedly for abstract moral reasons and whatever, that in reality, you really just want deep down because it's what's good for your wallet or good for your power or what have you. So, for example, southern slave owners increasingly turning to the rhetoric of benevolent paternalism the more the institution of slavery came into question in the antebellum period of American history. Or the fact that most people who make money from the military-industrial complex just happen to coincidentally favor a belligerent foreign policy and coincidentally just happen to make big donations to politicians who share that preference. Or, for example, the alcohol, tobacco, and prescription drug companies donating a lot of money to candidates and organizations dedicated to forever and ever perpetually ramping up the drug war. I got news for you. Alcohol, tobacco, and prescription drug companies aren't primarily motivated by caring about people's health. So anyway, that brings this episode to a conclusion. I hope you found 
this interesting and thought-provoking. Hopefully, at least a few of the concepts I've shared here are ones that you were not familiar with. Tune in next time when I'm going to cover another seven key concepts and theories that have shaped my understanding of history and of, of the present world, all of which in the next episode will have something to do with economics. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, The Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission, from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.